Hi, this is Mo. And this is Sarah, and you're listening to the podcast Bird Shit. We started this podcast to share our love of birding with other enthusiastic birders in the world. Everybody, welcome to another episode of Bird Shit Podcast. I feel like I just mumbled all my words together because I haven't said that in so long. Burger, 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 burger. I think we should turn it. What's the Muppet that the little like chef that oh, talks like that? Oh, the Swedish chef. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's how our, all of our episodes will be going forward. I really feel like I sound more like Beaker most days. Whatever Muppets are the ones that don't have real words, those are the, those are our Muppets. Those are our Muppets, for sure. Okay, well, we are back. One of our most popular episodes is our Uncommon Facts About Common Songbirds. So we thought we'd come back this time with Uncommon Facts About Common Corvids. Not to be confused with COVID, like all those bird memes that you see out there about pandemics and birds but we're hitting you up with some corvid facts about your favorite corvids of which there are actually like not a lot of corvids so we had to throw a bunch of other stuff in this episode to make it worth listening to stay for the corvids not the covid good joke (laughs) (laughs) yeah still making lame jokes even though we haven't recorded an episode in a long time Uh, but before we get started, we did want people to know, some people saw this on our Instagram, we do have some new bumper stickers, and people voted on what design they wanted, and so our new bumper stickers say bird shit happens. They are pink, and they're beautiful, and they are like full-size bumper stickers, and given that the USPS is basically a flaming dumpster fire right now, we wanted to support the USPS, so if you buy a bumper sticker, they're only $5, we will send it to you in the mail with a stamp and support the USPS. With probably two stamps on it if it's heavy. Well, so that's the thing. is like they are full-size bumper stickers, and I've been looking everywhere for like an envelope that you can ship a full-size bumper sticker in. I can't find them. They don't exist. There's not like a bumper sticker-sized envelope. So you will get a full-size bumper sticker folded in half to a normal-sized envelope. We're, we're going real specific with the details right here because this is what you care about. <laughs> the only details you really need to know is if you want a bumper sticker, they are $5.00. Send us a DM on Instagram at Birdship Podcast with your mailing address, and we will tell you where to Venmo the cash rather than just disclosing to Sarah's Venmo to the public. Yeah, because I had an incident recently where a friend went on my Venmo and commented on a recent Venmo transaction, which started a whole thing. Your friend sucks. No, she just doesn't understand what is social media and what's not. <laughs> Before we get this episode started... I had some details that I need the birding world to help me with. There is, like, this PBS channel here, and they do, like, this, like, uh, travel around the world, learn about shit show. And they were in Malaysia, and they were talking about cave swiftlets. And one of the facts she stated was that cave swiftlets were the only birds known to use echolocation, which made me have a major pause, yell at the TV, not fucking true, Because oil birds actually use echolocation as well. And I went online to do some research, and there was a scientific article that talked about cave swiftlets and oil birds using it. However, the Britannica Online Dictionary states cave swiftlets are the only birds that use echolocation. I checked their frequency pitches, and they both do, like, create noises that are audible to human ears. So I knew that wasn't the difference. So I am still... Wondering if this broadcast TV show is wrong and if Britannica Dictionary is wrong. Uh, Britannica Encyclopedia. Oh yeah, Encyclopedia. I, I don't know if anyone has an answer for this. I feel like oil birds and cave swiftlets are the two birds that use echolocation, not just cave swiftlets. And I just don't want this wrong information to be out in the world. Like imagine a small child watching this show and being like, 
There's no other birds that use echolocation. And then the oil bird, the poor fucking oil bird who gets its name because they used to grind up its babies for oil, is like, I'm I'm known for nothing. I'm known for what they disintegrate my young into. Yeah, cool. Not my echolocation abilities. Yeah, possibly fake news. Possibly fake news. Question mark. I could also be wrong, but Birding World, if you have an answer, hit us up on Instagram or Twitter and let us know. Sarah can't sleep at night. This is causing her a lot of agony. As you know, I love oil birds very much, so I feel very personally offended. So, Mo, before we get into talking about corvids, should we do... Birds in the news! Birds in the news! Birds in the news! Birds, 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 birds in the news! I think we fucked that one. Always. Every time. So... Previously on an episode, we talked about how the Trump administration had reinterpreted some protection laws for birds in the past saying, oh, well, if you don't intend to disturb a bird nest or your intention isn't to destroy this nest, then you can continue doing whatever the fuck you want. So they basically had taken this protection act for birds and said, well, I mean, it really depends on what your intentions are, which is fucking bullshit. And a judge saw through it. Judge Valerie Caproni ruled that the Trump administration's interpretation of the Migratory Bird Treaty Act to only criminalize affirmative actions is not only a sin to kill a mockingbird, but it is also a crime, was how she started her ruling. So she said that the Interior Department's 2017 reinterpretation of the century-old law means many mockingbirds and other migratory birds that delight people and support ecosystems throughout the country will be killed without legal consequence. So this is a great ruling for birds. Um, Essentially, she struck down their interpretation and is upholding the previous century-old law. Obviously, I'm sure they're going to fight it, and I'm sure they're going to be assholes about it, because they usually are. So um, it's a good ruling. I don't know if that will ultimately affect the outcome of what happens, because our government just does whatever the fuck it wants. But that's some happier news in the world, if my story made sense. My brain isn't working this early. It's 11.30 in the morning. <laughs> no, I do think it's important because I think, you know, oftentimes on this podcast, we talk about all the shitty laws and rules that are going into effect. And it was kind of nice to see a judge be like, no, actually, this is total bullshit. And I mean, there are like really big problems in the world and there are other really important things that could be happening but it is kind of nice to see that the justice system is working at least for birds in this particular instance and being like actually no that is not the right way to interpret that law and that's bullshit and it's not gonna fly that was not an intended pun (laughs) well speaking of flying one thing that is perhaps becoming a little more difficult for birds is flying because turns out they might be getting fat (laughs) as a result of the pandemic That was a really bad segue. (laughs) No, it was great. Please continue. Why are they getting fat? I know we talked about this earlier, but COVID-19 causing all these people to stay inside. Turns out what people are doing is spending a lot of time looking at their bird feeders or buying bird feeders or suddenly discovering that birds exist. And so that's cool. The sale of birding merchandise is up 10 to 15% this year, according to Panacea Products. So a lot of people with nothing else to do decide to start feeding the wildlife in their yard. Jim Bronard, the executive director of the Audubon Society of Western Pennsylvania, did say it's hard to know what impact the extra feeding will have on birds in the long term, since it's speculated that only about 10% of a bird's food intake comes from bird feeders, maybe 20% at the most, but generally they're off foraging. 
But COVID does have a lot of other really positive effects, reduced noise, less industrial activity. So it's been really easy for birds to hear each other, attract mates, establish territories. So those things have all been good. Uh, If you feel like you put on that quarantine weight, just know you're not the only ones because birds too, turns out, have been getting a little extra food this spring season. Well, good for them. I mean, the rats are probably also benefiting from that. Yeah, because there's less dumpster restaurant trash for them to eat, so they've been going more into neighborhoods. Trust me, I know all about rats now. Yeah, dude. And like rats eating rats because there's no other food. I can't tell if that's a good thing or a bad thing. It's probably a bad thing. Yeah, but like if one rat eats another rat, that means there's one less rat. But that probably means like, you know how like cows shouldn't eat beef because they get mad cow disease? Yeah, mad rat. Yeah. Are we going to get mad rat disease? They're all going to turn into... What was the rat in Ninja Turtles? Splinter? Splinter. I kept wanting to say scabby. I don't know why. But I think I was thinking of scabbers. Wasn't that the name of the rat in... uh... Harry Potter. Harry Potter. (laughs) Scabby the rat. I feel like the whole Ninja Turtles universe would completely change if they were like Professor Scabby versus (laughs) Professor... Splinter. Got his name from eating its rat brother. Okay, well, suffice to say, rats are eating rats, birds are eating bird food. It's fine. Yeah, it's all fine. This other article is making a strange but great effort to help seabirds. New research has revealed that waste, aka poop, produced by seabirds could be worth nearly half a billion dollars annually. Girl, if I can make money off of my poop like this, I would. I feel like there's going to be people out there who now try to do that. So way to plant that seed. The reason being is seabird feces, also known as guano, can be used as commercial fertilizer and is vital for contributing nutrients to marine ecosystems. They even have a few seabird species producing guano that is currently commercialized in Peru, Chile, and other countries. It's super great because they release high concentrations of nitrogen and phosphorus through their feces, which causes important environmental changes in the ecosystem, um, which is especially important in coral reef ecosystems to help them recover. They have estimated that the commodified guano figure of nearly $474 million, if you increase that to working in like more coral reef areas, this could be worth up to a billion dollars. Jeez. Yeah. Scientists are using this to kind of say like, hey, look at what these birds are offering us for free. Literally, they're just pooping all the time for free to help impact conservation and help bring more attention to how seabirds are facing huge threats from climate change, overfishing, invasive species, and bycatch, which means they're often killed accidentally as a byproduct of commercial fishing. So I think this is great. I think seabirds obviously are beautiful. They're a huge contribution to the ecosystem. I mean, I wouldn't be upset if my job was harvesting bird poop to help save seabirds. I'm going to remind you of that someday when that's your job. There's no complaining. I'll probably fucking live in Australia, live in like a floating house on the coral reef, and I just have to swim to another island and pick up bird poop and then drop it in the sea. Sounds great to me. This is coming from a person who started a podcast called Bird Shit, so I guess it's valid. Yeah, I think. I thought this was really great because, unfortunately, a lot of times people aren't so motivated by just conservation efforts and nature. But as soon as you put a dollar sign on it, you got some buyers. That's very true. 
Hopefully, seabirds, I hope your nitrogen phosphorus poop helps save your lives. The last article we have is from the website fizz.org. The article will be in the podcast notes, but you should watch it because it's super kind of gross like this video. So there is this Tasmanian bird called the 40 spotted partalote, and it's an extremely rare bird. It's about the size of a ping pong ball. It's super, it looks like a warbler. It's just like this cute little fluffy thing. But what they're finding out is there's these flies that lay their eggs inside the baby birds in the nest. And then the maggots burrow into the skin and drink all the blood and basically kills nine out of every 10 chicks in most areas. Whoa. It's on the decline. There's, they can't figure out what to do. So the scientists were trying to figure out a way to ward off the parasites. And when they were watching the nesting behavior of these birds, they often use feathers to line the nest because it's nice and soft and fluffy. So what they did was they bought an insecticide that was safe to the bird, but deterred the parasitic fly. And they coated some chicken feathers with this insecticide, set it up in some bird feeders, and the birds freaking went crazy when they were building their nests, gathered a bunch of these feathers, lined their nests. They found that this was so effective that the survival rate of these chicks basically bumped up to like 95%. All of a sudden, like just lining these feathers with this insecticide resulted in 95% of the chicks surviving as opposed to 9 in 10 dying. Just gave these these baby birds like that much more of a chance to live because they're basically not having their life sucked out of them from these blood-sucking maggots. I wonder what the flies are going to target now, though. I mean, I don't know. I am fucking interested in these little blood-sucking maggots, though. These things are cool. The video is, like, fascinating, but disgusting. Disgusting. They're pulling the maggots out of the baby birds, and when they pull it out, you can clearly see it has blood within its, like, see-through shell, and it is disgusting, but I'm also super here for it. Yeah. So one thing the article did say is that these maggots have been recorded in other small birds in the area that these scientists were studying. So there are more host birds that the flies can feed on. But the fact that these partalotes are already so endangered, it's basically like gives them a greater chance to survive. They still got other problems they got to deal with. I mean, they're still birds, so shit's happening to them. But it's such a simple solution, I guess, which is what's really cool to see. These scientists were like, what if we just line their nesting materials with this thing and just give the birds an opportunity to make a nest with insecticide feathers and it worked out. It's genius. I would be curious to know the survival rate of chicks of other species that are targeted by this fly. Yeah. And see if this bird is especially susceptible or if there's something else going on. But this is a fucking good article. Good job, though. Thanks, Internet. Good job. Good job, scientists. Yeah, I don't know if anything I said even just made sense, but like the article will be in the podcast notes, so you should read it. And watch that video. Watch the video of the maggot getting pulled out. Yeah, watch the video like between meals, like not when you're about to go eat something, especially pasta. Why would you say pasta? I don't know, because it kind of looks like uh, the little twirly rigatonis. What is wrong with you? No, no. I would say you don't, you're like going to eat rice. Um, that looks like maggots. Yeah. It's, no. Okay. Now you've ruined pasta. In the midst of this COVID-19 pandemic, we want to make things a little bit more confusing by dedicating this episode to corvids, aka the crow family. Corvids are known for their incredible intelligence, at least when it comes to human-run tests. Obviously, we're a little biased, but we think all birds are super smart. But in human-run tests, corvids really do kind of come out on top for being super genius. The brain-to-body weight ratios of corvid brains are among the largest in birds, basically equal to that of most great apes and only slightly lower than a human. So suffice to say, they got these big old brains and they're putting them to use. They also think that this intelligence is boosted by the long growing periods of their young, 
the young tend to stay with their parents a lot longer, which means that they have more opportunities for learning necessary skills. So in general, all corvids are super smart, but we thought we would share some uncommon facts about some of the most common ones. Yeah, so the first one we're going to talk about is the blue jay. The blue jay lives in deciduous, coniferous, and mixed forests throughout eastern and central areas of the U.S. and southern Canada. They're also going to be found in parks, suburban areas, and are frequent guests of backyard bird feeders. So the blue jay tends to be a bird of controversy. I feel like everyone's like, oh yeah, blue jays, they're such bullies, they're such assholes. But we here are a true fan. Now, for those of you who don't know why the blue jay is seen as a bully, there are a couple reasons. One of which is quite a cool talent. Blue jays can produce a convincing imitation of red-shouldered hawk and red-tailed hawks, and even bald eagles and eastern screech owls, which often confuses many a bird watcher and can also confuse other birds. You know how we talk about how in movies and stuff, they often use the red-tailed hawk for the eagle? I would actually love it if it was a blue jay that was mimicking a red-tailed hawk in all of these movies. I really hope that's happening somewhere. So this may provide a warning to other birds saying that a hawk is nearby, or it can be used by the blue jay to clear the line at a local bird feeder, allowing blue jays to have their pick of what they want. So, I mean, they're kind of seen as bullies at bird feeders, but they also sometimes provide warnings, but then they also might just be like, fuck off other birds, I want to eat right now. They're food motivated. I understand that. I relate to this bird on many levels already. Another interesting fact is blue jays named for their bright blue appearance aren't actually blue. Dun dun dun! I know, how deceiving! Like eastern bluebirds and indigo buntings, their feathers have modified prismatic cells that scatter light waves, reflecting the blue spectrum waves to the viewer. When you are actually up close and you can hide it, they're actually brown colored. Not as exciting. No. That's like turning water to wine though, man. Can you imagine being brown and then it's like, shit, actually I'm blue! (laughs) Way cooler! Oh, you guys, look at how great I look! It's like, it's like, it's like when you feel like shit and you put on a really nice outfit and you're like, yeah, this makes me feel great. Blue jays must feel great all the time. That's why they're so aggressive. They're like, I'm fucking fly. Yeah, they're like, I got this sweet outfit on. You all don't know. Y'all don't fucking know. Uh, sorry, I'm swearing a lot today. We got a lot of lost episodes to make yeah, up for. I know, I know, I know. I usually am not dropping this many F-bombs. Sorry, audience. Actually, I'm not sorry. They are not the state bird for any state in the U.S. However, they're the mascot of the Toronto Blue Jays baseball team. That's actually very surprising to me, that they're not the state bird for any state. Nope, not a single one. But over here, the Cardinals are like fucking 10 states. Oh my god. Some other interesting facts about Blue Jays. Um, As we talked about, because they're part of the Corvid family, they're super intelligent. And some examples include... As many of you know, brown-headed cowbirds are commonly known to sneak into other birds' nests and lay their eggs, um, abandoning their young to foster parent birds. However, blue jays are way too smart for this. Instead, they recognize the egg as foreign and eat it as a snack. That is baller. Yeah. In captivity, blue jays have been observing tools to obtain food, such as dragging strips of newspaper to bring food close enough to reach, or manipulating locks on cages. They're also smart enough to understand the principle of waiting. They are known to sit back and wait while humans are having lunch and then swoop down and finish scraps when they are finished. On top of this, many farmers have noted they will see them waiting until they're done planting to help themselves to a leisurely feast of seeds. 
Those just, it just seems like contradictory that they'll scare other birds away from a bird feeder by imitating a call, and yet they're patient enough to let a farmer lay down all their seeds and then go eat them. I think, though, that, that just shows how smart they are because they understand different concepts of time, for instance, because they'll understand if I wait for all these other birds to eat, there's not going to be any seed. But if I wait for this guy to lay down all the seed, I get it all. Yeah, that's a good point. He probably also tried to scare the farmer with the red-tailed hawk call and it didn't work. <laughs> yeah, probably that's what's been going on the entire time. He's like, I only see a blue jay. <laughs> so this one's really interesting, I thought. Unlike other birds, blue jays do not have a predictable migration pattern. Hmm. Often blue jays will stay in a habitat year-round, and then out of the blue, they'll decide to migrate and head south. The reason for this is still completely unknown. Wow. So yeah, they have no predictable migration. They're just like, eh, I'm just going to hang out here. This is what I want to do right now until I don't. The final thing I have about Blue Jays is that they participate in a behavior called anting, which I think we've talked about this before. So for memory, this is when they will rub the ants on their feathers, draining the ants of their formic acid before they gobble them up. So several theories have evolved regarding this bizarre behavior. I'm previously believing that they use the formic acid to prevent against parasites. But now there are other theories that have developed that they say the ants taste better without the formic acid. So they're removing it to get a better tasting ant, which is so smart and insane in my mind that you would be like, oh yeah, I just need to rub this ant a little off and then I'll get to the good juicy parts. And I'm like, who who would think of that? Who, like, how would they even test that? Would they be like, is there like some scientist who's like eating like an anted ant and a non-anted ant? (laughs) No, I know, (laughs) I know how they tested the tasting because they did, they did rub ants and then didn't rub other ants to remove the formic acid. And then they gave them to the blue jays to eat and they ate the ones without the formic acid on them. Oh, okay. I was like, whose poor like PhD research job was that to eat the ants that weren't rubbed off? I was like really confused. I was like, what is that? What are they talking about? Taste? Not according to humans taste. According to bird taste, they assume that the formic acid is causing them to do the rubbing. That makes way more sense. Yeah, that makes way more sense than forcing a grad student to eat ants. (laughs) Uh, I don't know, man. Uh, Everything I'm reading about all these students going back to school, they're not getting very great meals. I saw on BuzzFeed, they compared it to like fire festival meals. They'll give them like a box with like an orange and a juice cup and they'll be like, here's your dinner. P.S. It's 10 p.m. So maybe these people would be willing to eat ants at this point. I mean, I would eat ants. I'm not against it. I eat crickets. I'm like, let's move to bug supply, people. Damn. You're the stronger of us. You will survive. I'm probably just the less picky eater one of us. I'm just like, yeah, it's bug. Whatever. That's cool. If we, oh, if we had to do an island survival. Oh, fuck that. Who would last longer? You. Okay, how would you die and how would I die? I, w- I think I would die because I would do something that was really stupid. Like, I'd be like, oh, yeah, I'm going to swim out to this ocean. I'm going to live on that island because it's got more fish. And then I would obviously not make it to the island. Anymore. See, I think I would die because I would try to swim off the island thinking I could make it anywhere else besides the island. We're both just trying to swim and we <laughs> die. Just okay. like, the moral of the story is neither of us dies on the island because we both decide we don't want to be there. <laughs> As soon as I see I'm stuck on a deserted island with you, I'm like, well, fuck this. I'm getting out of here. (laughs) Instead of trying to survive together, we're both just like, well, bye. And we just swim into the ocean. I think that we would last as long as like our wine supply on the island. I think you would be better at building things. I think you have a better sense of like, oh yeah, let's construct this like place to sleep and everything. I feel like I'd be like, Mo, let's do this. And you'd be like, no. 
Not happening. Not happening. We have other things to worry about. Yeah, I could build a shelter, but you would have to forage the food. And I'm telling you right now, I'm not going to be eating the ants. Unless you rub all the formic acid off of them for me. I was just going to say, well, I could make them a bit tastier for you. <laughs> uh, okay. Now that we've settled what happens if we ever get trapped on an island together, I, I'm glad I know. Now we know. All right. Next up on our Corvid list, we have the American Crow. Like all the other Corvids, we have heard that American crows are very smart birds, at least as it pertains to these human-derived tests. They have been seen placing nuts on roads so cars can crack them. This one I love. They place bread in water as bait to catch fish, and they have also been seen using sticks as tools to retrieve food in hard-to-reach places. And as we talked about, the crow does have the largest brain-to-body size ratio of any bird out there, basically equivalent to that of a chimpanzee. Wow. Crows are also very sociable birds. While they do spend most of the year living in pairs, because they do often mate for life, they will roost with hundreds or thousands of their friends for sleeping in the winter. It also means they poop on everything during this time. I know we've talked about that in a previous episode, too, about all the crow poop that will congregate in places where these birds roost. Mama and Papa crows may also get help when it comes to raising their young. Juvenile crows are frequently seen defending their parents' nests from predators, bringing food to mom or dad, or helping feed their younger siblings directly. One study actually found that up to 80% of American crow nests surveyed had a helping hand, meaning that juvenile crows helped the parents raise the baby birds in that nest. And Aww. some birds even stay around to help their parents for over five years. Damn. I know, man. They're never going to be empty nesters, those parents. No, but also if I had, like, more kids, I'd be like, yeah, older kids, help me. Please. Apparently, crows also have a lot to say to each other. Studies have shown that crows have a quote-unquote vocabulary of as many as 250 different sounds. What? As ornithologist John M. Marsluff and author Tony Angel noted in their book, In the Company of Crows and Ravens, a crow's calls can vary regionally, basically like human dialects. And if a crow changes its social group, the bird will try to fit in by talking like the most popular crows. Basically, it reminded me a lot of uh, Caddy in Mean Girls, how she kind of like adjusted her whole vocabulary to fit in with the plastics. That is crazy. It's freaking nuts. It's like I got to get in with the popular crows if I want to be a member of this mm-hmm. social group. So it just, but it's also smart because it's basically I'm going for the coolest ones. I'm going to be their friends. It's a smart move. And if you are wondering, yes, it appears that crows do seem to hold funerals for their fallen peers. This is something that people have heard rumors about is like crows will hold funerals and stuff. Kaylee Swift, who is a postdoctoral researcher and Corvid expert at the University of Washington, has actually dedicated to studying these funerals. And while she is quick to point out that it's not possible to measure an animal's emotions because, you know, that's like a hard thing to actually scientifically gauge, but it is definitely possible to observe these funerals taking place. So we will put a link to her crow FAQ section in the podcast notes, and you should also follow her on Twitter at Corvid Research because she has, like, tons of awesome Corvid facts if you are into those things. Okay, well, we're going to go on to talk about the common raven. The common raven can be found in the northern hemisphere. Um, It can be on the outskirts of towns, to foothills, shrubs, out in deep woods and mountains. You can find them anywhere, basically. They are cool, cool birds, and they are very acrobatic flyers. So you can often see them doing rolls and somersaults in the air. And then it was noted that one raven was seen flying upside down for more than half a mile. They do this a lot when they're younger, too, because they're fond of playing games and everything, um, because they are so smart. 
So they will repeatedly take a stick, fly up, and then drop it, and then dive down to catch them in midair, hmm. which is super cool. Very, very fun playing birds. Besides using their intellect to play games, they also use it to put together cause and effect. So a study completed in Wyoming discovered that during hunting season, the sound of a gunshot draws ravens in to investigate a carcass, whereas they will ignore any other sounds that are just as loud. So for instance, an air horn or a car door slamming. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Where is a car door slamming the same volume as a gunshot? Have you ever heard me slam a car door? Oh, that's a good point. Boom. Okay. Um, They've also been known to call and lead wolves to a carcass to tear through the tough animal hide so they can dine on the soft innards. They also are smart enough to pull up fishermen's ice lines and eat their fish. That's got to be a lie because I don't think anyone catches fish when they ice fish. There's no freaking way. That's true. It's just you just build a shanty on the ice and you get shit faced. That's right. I was like, no one catches fish when they go ice fishing. Well, okay. So this is probably also why because they're all in the little shanty getting drunk and they all, they do have lines out there. That's a good point. You get so drunk you don't realize that a bird ate your fish. It's a very common thing in Michigan, you know? You know? You know? Even though that's Minnesota. So speaking of... I guess bird vocabulary. Common ravens can mimic the calls of other birds as well. So when raised in captivity, they can even imitate human words. And one common raven raised from birth was taught to mimic the word nevermore. Oh. Ah, shit. Oh, shit. Ravens can even learn to talk better than some parrots. And they will also mimic other noises like car engines and animals and other bird calls. What what does it mean, like, talk better than parrots? Like, have more words than parrots? Or, like, understand what the words mean more than parrots? My understanding is that they can produce the words. Got it. Okay. They can say the word more clearly or something? Yes. Or, or they can produce more words than some other parrots. That's pretty crazy. As I mentioned, the phrase nevermore from Poe, um, ravens are well known in folklore. So in France, people believed ravens were the souls of wicked priests, while crows were wicked nuns. In Germany, ravens were the incarnation of damned souls, or Satan himself. And in Sweden, ravens that croaked at night were thought to be the souls of murder people who didn't have proper Christian burials. Damn. Another one um, is in Denmark, where people believe that night ravens were exorcised spirits. So... Basically, if you're a raven, you're getting mistaken for a dead spirit all the freaking time. They're pretty ominous birds, so, you know, I can see that. Yeah, I mean, but I don't know why you'd be like, my aunt went into it. That's her soul. Like, unless you really hated your aunt. I mean, <laughs> I know. So maybe someone was like, yeah, it's my aunt. I didn't like her. She's in that bird now. So, yeah. So that was a cool folklore thing. I always love folklore. And for all those folklore stories, not a single raven made it onto Taylor Swift's new album. What? That's dumb. Missed out, T-Swift. So going back to kind of Raven's vocabulary, it turns out not only are they good at making vocal imitations, they have a very sophisticated non-vocal signal system. So in other words, they use gestures to communicate. A study in Austria found that Ravens point with their beaks to indicate an object to another bird, just as we do as our fingers. They also hold up an object to get another bird's attention. So this is, I think, really important because this is only seen in primates. Primates are the only other ones that do this and are known to recognize pointing. Oh, dogs don't know when you're pointing at anything. No, dogs don't understand when you're pointing at anything. But so I think this just goes to like bring home how intelligent these birds are is that they do use hand gesture. Well, not hand gestures, but they just they gesture with their beaks to communicate. Okay, our final thing 
where you talked about empathy in crows, I'm going to talk about empathy in ravens. You know, despite being seen as mischievous or, you know, as Satan, um, they do, they are capable of, I guess, what we would say is empathy in human interpretation. So when a raven's friend loses in a fight, they will seem to console the losing bird. So they will go over and make sure they're okay. They also remember birds they like and will respond in a friendly way to certain birds for at least three years after seeing them. Whoa. Yeah, so they can remember who their friends are. And also if they have any enemies, they'll respond negatively to them or suspiciously to strange ravens. So they do have some capability of recognizing other birds that they like or don't like. And finally, a flock of ravens is called an unkindness. Oh, that's weird. Yeah. All right. Next up for our West Coast fans, the black-billed magpie. So the black-billed magpie is commonly seen in the Western U.S., has an all-black head, chest, and white belly, and a long, dark tail. Its wings will initially look white and black, but if you look in sunlight, they actually have that iridescent blue color, kind of like the blue jay feel to it. It is truly a very beautiful bird for how common they are. They're also incredibly challenging and sociable. You're not sensing a trend here. The black-billed magpie's large nest can take up to 40 days to construct. And even though it takes that much time, scientists think that this massive task only takes up about 1% of their daily energy expenditure for a given magpie pair. So they're doing a lot of other shit. What? I literally, like, I'm sorry to bring this up again, but when it said it can take 40 days to construct, I was like, that's how long it would take us to build something on the island. (laughs) It would, and it also would probably be 1% of our energy expenditure because we'd spend 99% just bitching about the fact that we were on an island together. <laughs> oh, I'm too tired to build. I spent so much time complaining today. <laughs> oh, it's so true, though. I promise I'll never bring up this island thing again. I don't know why it's in my mind right now. Historical records of the American West also show that magpies would commonly follow hunting parties of Plains Indians so that they could feed on the leftover carrion. Lewis and Clark also reported that magpies would enter their tents to steal food. They're very food-motivated birds. I'm into it. Hell yeah. And if you are one of those people who got really into TikTok during quarantine, you are probably not as into TikTok as magpies are into ticks. Magpies will actually pick ticks off the backs of large mammals, like deer and moose, but since they're corvids, they don't necessarily eat the ticks right away, and they will attempt to cache them away for later. But since most of these ticks are cached alive and unharmed, the ticks probably still live to reproduce later on in life. So you would like to think they were helping with the tick population, but they're actually not. They're just making this like little tick farm. (laughs) I guess. I don't know. (laughs) Like, I don't understand. They're like, okay, I took this off your back, but I don't want to eat it right now. It's a live bug. I'm just going to put it over here and hope it stays. Like what? (laughs) Yeah, I guess they're, they're trying to keep them as pets or something, but it's not really working out. I'm totally making that up. This is like the least scientific. <laughs> I'm just spreading lies. I know. I know this is a lie, but I really want one magpie to invite another over and be like, look at all my ticks. Look at all these ticks I collected. Oh, they're running away. Oh, well. <laughs> <laughs> Goodbye, pets. Bye, pets. <laughs> they're like the feral cats of like magpie neighborhoods. They are. They're feral ticks. Come on, magpies. Get it together. Unlike all of the depressing names that we call groups of crows and ravens, there are very colorful ways to refer to a group of magpies, including a charm, gulp, mischief, tittering, and tribe. Who came up with gulp? Probably the founder of 7-Eleven. <laughs> Got all these magpies out of my store. I better use them to advertise. We'll call them a gulp. <laughs> and then if your store is like really popular with magpies, it's a big gulp. <laughs> like what? 
Like, I get the charm and mischief and even try, but the gulp and tittering, I'm like, who's coming up with bird group names? I don't know. I just decided that we have to change this episode from uncommon facts about common corvids to common lies about common corvids because we're just like, we're reduced too many of our own ideas into this whole thing. So people can tell the difference. People can tell what's our, you know, added commentary versus the truth, hopefully. I hope so. Otherwise, we're going to be just as bad as Britannica Encyclopedia. We're Britannica Dictionary is what we are. We have covered all of the Corvids that in the U.S., I guess. All the common Corvids in the all U.S. All the common Corvids in the U.S. But we did want to include a bonus section on how to tell the difference between a crow and a common raven. So first, a little fun fact. Um, crows and ravens are the only North American bird species that are completely black in color. They have territory overlaps in the Pacific Northwest, Northeast, and parts of the Midwest, East, and California. So here are the easiest ways to tell the two birds apart. Ravens are significantly larger, with a wingspan around 45 inches. Crows have a much smaller wingspan, with bodies around the size of a pigeon. Ravens also have larger bills, which typically have a slight curve to them. If you can't tell by their body size, um, next listen to their calls. So crows often have what we would say is more like a caw, caw sound. while ravens have a deeper throatio croaking call. Shout out to Merlin Library for those clips. So let's say, you know, you can't really tell by the call or he's not making any noise. Um, if you can't get close, ravens often in their physical features have fluffier feathers around their head and especially at their throat. It sort of looks like a shaggy, unkempt quarantine beard. So just just think of that. Whereas American crows will have a smooth, non-quarantine beard feather around their face. It's like a well-trimmed, manicured. Yes. So ravens are the big, unruly ones, and crows are the smaller, well-kempt ones. Okay, so let's say, rather than seeing these birds sitting around, you see them flying. One good way to tell the two birds apart is to look at the tail feathers. A crow's tail feathers are all fairly even in length, which gives them kind of like a fan-shaped look when they fly. But a raven's tail feathers are all different lengths, which kind of looks like either a wedge or a diamond shape when they're flying above you. Another thing to observe when they're flying is how they fly. Typically, a raven will soar, or apparently fly upside down for half a mile, but a crow will flap their wings more frequently. So that's a good way to kind of tell them apart in flight. You can also watch them walking around on the ground. Crows kind of walk, kind of like a strut. They kind of look like... I don't know, chickens maybe? But a raven will do a combination of walking and hopping. They kind of like do like this little two-footed hop thing. It's kind of cool to watch. And when in doubt, the bird following Edgar Allan Poe is the raven. Oh, that's going to help me the most. Yeah, that's definitely the way to go. I'm always like, Edgar, what Poe is there? <laughs> what Poe is that? Edgar, what Poe is that? Edgar, Edgar, what Poe? Am I to say what bird is that? That... Words. Obviously, you can tell we have not recorded or used words in a really long time. Well, thanks, guys, for listening to Mo and I ramble on in another episode that kind of talked about the truth or the interesting facts about Corvids. And then we threw some, we sprinkled some weird lies in there, I'm sure. If you want to uh, send us an email, you can send us an email at hellobirdshit at gmail.com. If you want to check us out on Instagram, we are at Birdship Podcast or on Twitter where we are at Birdship Pod. Thanks, Mo. Go.
Got it. I just wanted your voice to be in there a little. That's all. We hope that you are staying safe and healthy. We are still pretty much in lockdown where I live in Michigan. So we are getting a lot of takeout, enjoying the outdoors. Go have a picnic, people. Enjoy that fall migration. It's starting up. Exactly. Keep your eyes to the sky.